We've come to the end of our current teaching series on 2 Corinthians. Or at least we do today. So, good morning. Let's get to it. As, um, as Steve was telling us last week, uh, reading this letter has at times uh, felt rather like mining a seam of gold out of solid granite. So hard work. Hasn't always been easy to see exactly what Paul was getting at, as we've read, at any individual one point. But it's been worth the effort of digging out the gold, which has been principally about one great theme, which is reconciliation. Of course, Paul's primary purpose, as he wrote, was, without any doubt at all, reconciliation between himself and his readers in ancient Corinth, with whom he'd rather fallen out. But he couldn't get that message across without also expounding on various other reconciliations. Reconciliation with each other, relationally. Reconciliation between their current way of thinking and the gospel that he once preached to them. Reconciliation between belief and action. And vitally, of course, their own reconciliation with God, which some of them were in danger of squandering. And as we saw, behind all of those different facets of the one subject stands the central truth of the letter, which we saw in uh, chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Our God himself is all about reconciliation and is entrusted to us, yes, little us, the central role in his eternal cosmic plan. Those verses say, All things are of God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not reckoning to them their sins, and has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. We are ambassadors, therefore, on behalf of Christ, as if God were pleading and reasoning through us. We beseech you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Today we're going to read from chapter 12, verse 14 through to the end, and we shouldn't be surprised to find that Paul is concluding by pointing us all uh, once more back to God, back to the ministry of reconciliation, and back to unity with each other. Because after all, we can't preach reconciliation if we're not living it. As Jason put it a couple of talks ago, your walk talks. I've called a final talk in this series, The Road to Reconciliation, Asking Ourselves the Right Questions. I'm just going to take a sip of water and then we'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 14. Thank you for taking the hint, Jason. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not bound to save up for their parents, but parents for the children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you 
It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish. And you may find me not as you wish. Though perhaps there may be quarreling or jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over the many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you'll find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. Though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you. That when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Before Paul gets into those uh, closing instructions and that famous blessing that ends this letter, he issues a last set of challenges. And I think it's helpful to see these in terms of four questions. Certainly our passage opened with a, a long series of questions designed to challenge a prevailing mindset, a set of unconscious assumptions which flavor every conscious thought. And this is something that I think we all have to deal with in ourselves. We all have internal monologues going on, unnoticed in the background of our thought life. And if we're very lucky people, uh, we don't do luck here, do we? If we're very blessed people, uh, as we all are, I'm sure, um, <clears throat> we, we, those are very positive and, and affirming internal monologues. I'm so lucky, I have everything I need, and everyone is so incredibly nice to me. What have I done to deserve it? And that's, the, that's the, the background of those people's life. I know one person, I think, who's a bit like that. 
But those of us who are less fortunate, which I suspect does mean most of us, have to work against a constant background noise of sometimes critical attitudes, both towards ourselves and towards others. I'm so useless. Every time you make a mistake, I'm so useless. I get everything wrong. Or every time someone does something nasty, he's an idiot and she's a cow. Well, what can you expect? That's what the world is like. Well, not for nothing is Satan, the enemy of our souls, and the father of lies, called the accuser of the brethren. Wherever those negative tapes, anyone remember cassette tapes? Some some of you are old enough to. uh, Those tapes are playing in the back of your mind. He's not far away. But as an old preacher I heard long ago used to say, most of us make the mistake of doubting our doubts, uh, 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 doubting our beliefs and believing our doubts. We've got to do things the other way around. We've got to doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs. And that actually also implies to more relationships than just the most important one of all, which is our relationship with God himself. It's also true in social relationships, business, family relationships, the lot. The devil is the author of chaos, confusion, and distrust. He's constantly trying to eke out the little time he has left before his inevitable destruction by opposing God's work of reconciliation in this world. As Jesse pointed out a couple of weeks back, Paul is trying to defuse the criticism he knows has been leveled against him, principally by reminding the Corinthians of who he is. Who is the real Paul that they actually knew? Would that man be likely to act in the way he's been accused of acting? Or as my boss in the crime squad used to say every time one of us asked him a silly question, come on, this is me you're talking to. As with Paul... Though they're very different people, my crime squad boss and Paul. Knowing the man answered the question before it was even asked. Paul knew that negative ideas about himself, his message, even about God, had really taken hold in Corinth. They'd become part of a collective internal monologue. Paul isn't a real apostle. He's a failure and a fraud. No wonder he refused to take a salary when he was here. I notice he's asking us for money now, though. And as a wise leader, Paul doesn't merely confront wrong thinking directly. He also used the softer but often more effective tactic of questioning. If, as I'm sure you all are, uh, you're familiar with the change management curve, which is so beloved of um, business consultants, and is also available in the appendices of our home group leaders training manual, by the way, those of you who are home group leaders, uh, ask your home group leaders if you haven't seen it. You will know, or ask me down at the pub sometime. I'll easily draw it in the back of a napkin. Um, you will know, and I'm happy to do it. I love drawing. I love this diagram. It's the best diagram in the world, the change management curve. You will know, if you're familiar with that, that when somebody is resistant to new ideas, it is questions that are the most likely method of getting him to get the point. Not, not to opposition and information. Not direct argument, not even actual evidence. Questions. I want to suggest that in this passage, Paul is deliberately inviting his readers, us included, to ask ourselves the following questions. That will challenge some of those negative internal monologues that are going on in all our minds all the time, whether we recognize it or not. What is true? What is real? Where are we heading? And what's important? First of all, what's true? Verses 14 to 18. Well, one thing that was true at the time of writing, Paul is coming soon. 
What is not true is that he's going to be a financial burden to them. Under the influence of those super apostles that we referred to earlier in the, in the, um, the series, they've got into the way of thinking of Paul as some sort of feeble dependent upon them, and themselves as the, the wise, well-equipped go-getters. But Paul says, it ain't necessarily so. They won't have to provide for him, verse 14, any more than a young child has a duty to provide for her parents. Because the reality is that that's what they are in spiritual terms. They're the children. He is the adult in the relationship, not them. And verse 15, that's not a hardship to him. Like every loving parent, he's only too willing to pay his children's way in the world. Then come those gentle but persistent questions. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Did I take advantage of you? Did Titus? Weren't we completely in step, spiritually and practically? Come on, this is me you're talking about. What's really true here? Just because those super apostles with all our wonderful credentials said bad things about me, do you have to believe them? I think you know me better than that, don't you? Well, in fact, as one learned commentator points out, the very fact that this letter still exists provides a strong proof that they did know him better than that. Because they could have put this letter straight on the fire when, as soon as they received it. But instead, they kept it, they copied it as a treasured resource. So we can safely assume that the message of these gentle questions actually got through. But what has this to say to us? Why should we ask ourselves this kind of question about what's true? Well, precisely because whether we know it or not, we all have those negative tapes playing in our heads about particular people, types of people in general, people who hold particular positions, that kind of thing. And of course, the accuser of the brethren is right there whenever those tapes are playing. If he can ensure that we hear them often enough, they will become the normal background of our thinking and we won't even know it. The issue might be someone that we've fallen out with. And perhaps we were quite right to do so. But how long have we been thinking about them in this way? Isn't it possible that they've changed since? Or that, heaven forbid, we might have been partly to blame in the first place? Or it could be about a group of people. Perhaps an appropriate example in the context of 2 Corinthians might be church pastors or church folk generally. Because aren't those precisely the kind of people the devil would most want to split us off from if he can? So the tape goes something like this. Church is boring, exhausting, pointless. Pastors only want my money. Church people are so fake. Worship is just emotionalism and manipulation. Pastors have no idea what it's like in the real world. And so uh, on it goes. And of course, those critiques and others like them only bite because at some point in the past, they have contained a grain of truth. I'm confident that none of those negative statements is true of this church. But if you're not so sure, perhaps what you need to do is to reshape them into questions until you work it out. Is this church boring? Is this pastor only after my money? Etc., etc. Like Paul, I'm sufficiently confident of what's true here that I'd encourage us all to ask ourselves these questions. Ask me. Check out our record. Ask to see our financial accounts. 
We need to challenge those internal negative monologues by asking ourselves, what is true? Secondly, what is real? Verses 19 to 21. Once we have those negative tapes playing on in our heads about a particular person, it soon becomes impossible to avoid misinterpreting her intentions. In the TPV, that's the Toby paraphrase version, it reads like this. Do you think all this is about us defending ourselves to you? Not on your Nelly. You don't get to judge us. God does. This isn't a court of public opinion. In fact, we couldn't give a fig for your opinion. But we do care enough about you to want you to avoid a terrible mistake. This is all for your benefit, not ours. We love you guys. The reality that the Corinthians need to confront is that Paul is now speaking on behalf of Jesus in the sight of God and is coming soon to do the same face-to-face with them. Perhaps they want to think a little bit at this point about what that meeting is going to be like. They've been looking uh, at this forthcoming meeting, this visit, in completely the wrong way. Their slanted human assessment, which they've made, is going to be driven out soon enough by the spiritual reality. And then there will be no room for excuses. What will it be like if he finds them quarreling and jealous and angry and all that stuff in verse 20? He would hate that. And neither would they find him very agreeable company if they were like that, because he'd start putting it straight. Some of us were reflecting in home group last week in another Bible study altogether, how people tend to distract attention from their own faults and failings by drawing attention to those of others. And this, I think, is one of the reasons that we allow those negative tapes, those negative internal monologues about other people to keep running in our own minds. Because there seems to be a perverse sort of comfort in saying, well, at least I'm not doing that. I don't even consider how badly I myself am behaving while I'm concentrating on how badly someone else has treated me. I remember I was flabbergasted once. I'll never forget it, actually. It was just so amazing. To be accused of a deliberate rudeness which I knew I couldn't possibly have committed. Because it's just something I never do. I wouldn't do. It's not me. I, you know, I, I am not the person who would ever do that. So I obviously didn't. But unless my accuser was just making it up for some crazy reasons of her own, she must have had a very negative tape about me running in the back of her mind to imagine that I could have done that. So as I self-satisfiedly thought about that as an example of someone else doing it to me, I realized that in the last day or two, coincidentally, coincidentally just since I started preparing this talk, I've come to realize that I'm not much better myself. There is uh, certainly one person, there's one I've been thinking about, no one in this church, by the way, who I've come to realize I find difficult to credit with any positive attributes or motivations at all. And the reason is that instead of processing past hurts properly, um, I've forgiven some of these sort of genuine, if petty, personal wrongs, but I've stupidly allowed them to shape my whole impression of the person. And that is completely unfair of me. It's a form of negative prejudice, which makes me uncharacteristically quick to find fault with that one person. 
And if you know me, I'm not really like that about anybody else. I'm quick to believe the worst of him, to imagine poor motivations and slights where none is probably intended. Well, I'm just glad that I'm in accountable relationships where that kind of thing can be pointed out to me and was. I hope you are too. Luckily for the Corinthians, they are in an accountable relationship with Paul. And he challenges them gently and persistently to question themselves about what is real. Verse 21 shows just how bad that self-deception might have become at Corinth, that deflection of attention from their own faults. Surely none of them would have actually tried to defend sex outside marriage. Yet, they had become so busy accusing Paul to each other that he fears that this elephant in the room is going completely unremarked. But when a Christian church can get to that point, they really are a very long way from reality. This, as a wise man once said, I think it was me, is not that. This is not that. Really important principle. What is real and what is not? Question three, where are we heading? Chapter 13, one to four. In verse one, just as if he hadn't already said it, a mere eight years, eight verses earlier, Paul reminds them that he's going to be among them shortly. And for some of them, they can look forward to a blissful reunion. For others, it's going to be more of a, a moment of repentance and reconciliation, maybe weeping on each other's shoulders. But for others, again, perhaps it's going to be a showdown that they can't possibly win. So where are they headed? If they don't ask themselves the question now, it'll soon be too late to correct their course. And Paul's little confusing comment about the two or three witnesses seems most likely to refer to his own three visits. The case against the unrepentant is going to be established not just by what he finds on this third visit, but by what he already knows about them. They've had ample warnings, verse 2. Plenty of chances to change their ways. Now, judgment is coming. It's not clear what is going to happen to those who defy him. But Paul is quite confident that when he comes, there'll be no doubt left in anyone's minds, verse 3, whose authority he bears. As we know from the rest of this letter, the Corinthians had come to look on Paul as rather unimpressive, a weakling in body and no great speaker either. But verse 4, Jesus himself was regarded in the same sort of light by those who crucified him. Yet since his resurrection, he had proved himself to be infinitely powerful. Paul's point is that if they pick a fight with Paul, they're going to find themselves toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus. And that is not going to end well. That's not the kind of extreme claim that any of us in this room would make for ourselves. Yet we have to remember that we are all heading for a judgment one day. And it's worth asking ourselves from time to time what that's going to be like. Where are we headed? Now, of course, I don't want to frighten anyone who has made his or her peace with Jesus. Because as we learnt in both Exodus and Hebrews over the last year, even in the Old Testament, right at the centre of worship lay the law of God covered with the mercy seat of God. But God's mercy is not indiscriminate. His mercy seat is accessible to those who choose to come to it. Those who rely on their own righteousness for salvation 
and despise his mercy as unnecessary are making a terrible mistake. As we read earlier, therefore, we plead with you, be reconciled with God. What's true? What's real? Where are we heading? Fourth and last question, what's important? Verses 5 to 10. Now, some of you, I think, might be surprised in verse 5 to see Paul actively encouraging his readers to dig down to their very foundations and have a good look around. As a younger, okay, I admit it, much younger Christian, I can remember being afraid to look too deeply into my own salvation, as if it were somehow lacking in faith if I were to do that. It felt like I was looking a gift horse in the mouth asking God if I was really saved or or searching through the scriptures on the subject. And surely those naughty theologians who studied what they call soteriology, different views and theories in the Bible of salvation, surely they were in big trouble. Well, in fact, I had no reason to be concerned because the deeper you dig into the goodness of God and the completeness of his salvation, the more total and comprehensive you will find it to be. My trouble was the slender grasp I had on two things, the infinite love and patience of God and the fact that my salvation does not depend on what I do or what I think or what I believe, but on what he has done. His cosmic plan to reconcile all the world to himself and to involve saved sinners like me in the project. What's important? that Jesus Christ died for my sins and that repenting and accepting him as Lord and Savior, I can actually become a true child of God. That by his spirit, Jesus himself comes to live not only with me, but actually in me. That's important. We did a talk three weeks ago called Prove It from chapter seven and eight. And now we return to the same theme for verses 5 to 7, are all about proving in the sense of trying a coin, like a gold coin, melting it down and seeing if it's the real deal or not, seeing if it's real or counterfeit. Prove yourselves, verse 5. Get out into the places where your faith will actually be tested. Welcome persecution. Embrace opportunities to pray for the sick and witness to the lost. Engage in a life that takes faith, not just what you can see and what you know you can do. Failing to meet the test in this verse, the Greek word adokimoi, is the word for counterfeit coins. We need to know if we're the real deal or not. And the same word is used in verse 6 to say that if they prove themselves, then they'll be sure of their own genuineness, and that in itself will be the proof that Paul and his friends are also the real deal. Because if the gospel they preached has produced real children of God, then they must be the genuine article as well. And the same language of proving is used again in verse 7 to say, the reason we want you to do right isn't so that we're proved genuine. We already know that. We want you to do good because it's good. Even if if we seem to be counterfeits ourselves. Once more, you see, it's not about Paul and company proving themselves to anyone. They know before God that they're the real deal. This whole argument is for the good of the Corinthians, so they will know who they are and what they have in Christ and actually live like it for a change. 
Paul knows that the more they investigate their foundations, the more confidence they will place in Jesus, and the more they will re-engage in the ministry of reconciliation that God has set before them. It is their reconciliation and restoration, verse 9, to the truths that they once embraced that really matters. Paul's authority, as he states with increasing confidence in verse 10, is not for tearing down, it's for building up. And if you'll just allow me to dwell on that thought for, for, for one minute, I vividly remember towards the end of the time that I was working for the police and began to work as a, as a pastor in the Riverside Vineyard. God saying to me that I had been a man of war, but he was making me into a man of peace. And because my Bible knowledge is so defective, I only realized later how in 1 Chronicles 28, God didn't allow David to build the temple because he was a man of war, but said your son Solomon will because he's a man of peace. Now, if I'm honest, the man of war in me still surfaces from time to time, particularly when I've unconsciously been playing those negative tapes in the back of my mind about people or situations or philosophies or political views, and that man of war is not particularly nice to know. But as James 1.20 reminds us, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I believe there's some men of war, maybe women of war as well, in this church, whom God is now calling to become men of peace so you can build the house of God. And perhaps this is more of a process than an event. I still have a great deal to learn from verse 9, actually to be glad when others who disagree with me are strong, obviously strong, and I appear weak. But as we've seen before in this letter, perhaps the key to cracking that particular nut is prayer. If I could just convert all the energy I sometimes expend on disagreeing with people and finding fault with them, if I could convert that into prayer for their restoration, perhaps I'd be more of a man of peace than I am. And just to finish, verses 11 to 14, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And we finish with the verse that gives us a prayer, the grace which is said all over the world countless times every single day. As I pointed out at the very start of this series, perhaps this whole letter describes a movement from the position of verse 2 of the first chapter where Paul blesses the Corinthians with grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to this final verse of all where through this huge masterwork on reconciliation and restoration he's finally able confidently to bless them also with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all and me. Amen. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Lord God, we thank you for all the wisdom that there is in your word in the Bible. We thank you that you still speak through it to our hearts today. We thank you that even today, as, uh, as your word has been read, as we've sung to you, you've been speaking to our hearts. 
And Lord, we want to take this opportunity now to, um, to bring those things to you, to do business with you, to be reconciled to you. Maybe some of us to be restored to a position that we've, we've lost. So Lord, would you come by your Holy Spirit in this ministry time now and bless your children because we know that's what you want. We know you just want everyone to be fully reconciled to you from top to toe, every part. We know that your mercy seat is where you choose to sit to welcome us. And so unworthy as we are, we come to you. Lord, we confess that we haven't, we haven't been entirely right. That we need your mercy. And we come to you for forgiveness. We come to you for cleansing. We come to you to have those negative tapes taken out of our minds and thrown away and replaced with the positive, affirming messages that you want to give to us. So come, Holy Spirit, and move among us, we pray.